Welcome to Award Winners. I'm your co-host, John, joined by David DeBaum Cross. This is our night at the Oscars, where we watch Oscar-winning movies while enjoying Oscar Meyer Wieners. It's a celebration of American culinary and cinematic pop culture. In this episode, we discuss the war thriller, The Hurt Locker, winner of the 2008 Oscar for Best Picture. David and John proudly present to you the celebration of American culinary and cinematic pop culture. It's a war Bomb. What is going on? So is that a reference to my uh, dumb truck ass or that I once <laughs> ate some spicy hot sauce? <laughs> you mean your bell peppers that you were raging on about? <laughs> <laughs> we did have the bomb. We did have that on this podcast. Didn't have the bomb. We had the hottest hot sauce. So it was like two levels oh, up from that. I didn't realize the bomb was not the the hot sauce. That That's, that's misleading. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So Dave and I, episodes ago, what was the circus movie? The greatest story ever told? Greatest show on earth. Greatest show on earth. As a circus act, Dave and I put some of the hottest hot sauce on the planet on our hot dogs from Hot Ones. Yeah. Good hot sauce. Anyway, it's referring to my hot sauce, not my dumb truck of gas is what, what I'm getting from this. Uh, I'm going to let our listeners decide what they think it should be for. Oh, great, great. I'd look for my thirst trap photo on Instagram. That's right. <laughs> Gonna get negative, negative likes. Is that possible? It's possible. It gets banned. That's a negative we, like, I yes. suppose. <laughs> Let's shift gears here and like actually talk about what's going on. I have big news, John. Really, really big news. You're pregnant. <laughs> I'm pregnant. Yes, I pulled a, I pulled a, a, a Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger. I'm glad you knew where I was going with that. No, I went back to the theater for the first time. Oh, nice. What did you see? A Quiet Place Two, a movie that I think needs to be seen in a theater, which is the, really one of the only reasons I went. It was a very good experience. Very happy to be back. I would recommend it if you feel comfortable. I'm double vaccinated. <laughs> double vaxxed. Double vaxxed and ready for some popcorn snacks. It's a good movie. It's on par with the original. I think it's a good movie going experience because of the sound elements involved. What's going on with you? Uh, I went home for the first time. I saw you and people we hang out with. For the first time in probably two years? Or yeah, about two years. Months, two years. That's the most people I've seen in one location in 18 months. So there were like nine of us. All vaccinated. It's good to see everyone. Kind of go right back into the swing of it. It's like nothing ever really changed. I don't know how you felt about that. I mean, I had an adjustment period. So I went from New York, where everyone was wearing a mask at all points, to Ohio, which no one was wearing a mask at any points. And that was a lot. That I will agree with you, yeah. Yeah, I had to remind myself that I'm fully vaccinated, so I'm okay. I really hope that everyone who didn't have a mask on was being safe. I don't think they were, but nope. I'm going to choose to believe that they were for their own good, because I do not want people to get hurt. Well, that's their decision at this point. We'll be safe. They'll be sorry. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. Uh, it was a weird experience, but New York has now opened up as of this week, where we reached 70% vaccinated. This city is going to explode. On 4th of July, I could tell that the streets are going to be filled with drunken revelers. And I'm excited to see what happens. If you recall last year, most fireworks I've ever seen, ever, 
none of it legal or sanctioned. <laughs> Same. All the way through July. It was like going through August yeah. at like midnight or 4 a.m. Just fireworks. One firework. You're like, what is going on? At least put a show on. <laughs> I had never seen so many fireworks shot off from someone's backyard before. Everyone's backyard was shooting off gigantic $50 fireworks. Hundreds of them. I don't know where people got the money to do that. Maybe it was that Trump check. that They're just like, yeah, let's fucking blow shit up. <laughs> Good like, for the okay. firework industry, I guess. <laughs> I, I, it must have been. I okay. should buy stocks in the fireworks industry before that happens. I mean, I believe they're pronounced stonks. <laughs> if they're fireworks, it's definitely stonks. All right. Uh, anything else you wanted to bring up? I did want to switch over to first run movies. I did say that Quiet Place 2, good. I would recommend seeing it. I also saw Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead. I would say that this movie is peak Zack Snyder. If you like Zack Snyder, you're going to love this movie. If you don't like Zack Snyder, you're going to hate this movie. It has all of his problems and all of his strengths. It is 100% him. I thought it was fine. 65%. You give it a 65 out of 100? Yeah. Oh, wow. So that doesn't seem that great to me. I think most movies are hover around 70. It gives me no like goosebumps and I'd watch it. I'm not going to watch it again. I mean, on your grading scale, that's like a D. Okay. Well, then I'll give him a 70. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he passes, but doesn't do a great job. I did get into uh, some trouble on Instagram talking about Zack Snyder. What happened? I said that Zack Snyder and Rob Zombie had similar vibes. Their movies had similar vibes. And everyone's like, you're wrong. What are you thinking about? The thing here is that both of them can be really interesting directors, but they need an editor and they need someone to come in and say no. Because if left unchecked, they will go and go and go. They don't know how to self-edit is what it comes down to. And a couple of people agree with me, but that was what I was going at for that. I mean, you could say that about George Lucas too. Yeah, that's, that's someone I didn't think about. Your overconfidence is your weakness. Yeah, his movies aren't as angsty, but yes. They're just aimless. <laughs> about trade negotiations so can... i guess that's maybe even unfair to say because the latest trilogy was also aimless and totally not him so have you seen any new movies i watched in the heights mm. which i thought was okay same can you recall one song from that movie nope i can't either i can re i can recall scenes but i can't recall a song and i think that's an indicator of quality it's a solid b movie not a b movie as in like a genre movie but as in it gets a b ranking it gets an 80 percent from dave <laughs> the dave cross scale you never know what's going to happen it's going to change every time we talk <laughs> yep. it's an 11 out of 10 no it's going to be like it's an 8 out of 13 uh it's like just random numbers so john are you ready to get into what we're here to do <laughs> are you ready ready to, to explode this uh sure bomb Okay, yep. uh, so we're here to talk about, as you mentioned, The Hurt Locker. How would you describe this movie? The Hurt Locker, it is mostly about a bomb squad that recently lost its leader, who had a very specific and safe style of doing things. A new guy comes in, who's a bit of a cowboy, has his own issues, which then creates a lot of tension within the group as they're sent out to basically explode IEDs. What's an IED? an improvised explosive device. That's all they talked about in the news around the time this movie came out. And well, I guess before this movie came out. So yeah. starting in about 2003, would you say through 2010, we heard about IEDs regularly, constantly, like every day they were talking about IEDs. It was everywhere. The guerrilla forces that were 
in these locations were setting up explosives that would go off when a truck would drive over it or troops would block by. The whole goal is just to maim people. It's kind of like a landmine of sorts made with whatever they could find. They were effective in that way and they were hard to combat. So we saw a lot of injuries. So jumping back to your description of this film, I think you nailed it. I think a descriptor that we should include is that it is a documentary style. I'm taking that from a lot of the reviews I read. They are, they're all like, it feels like you're watching a documentary. It feels like you're watching The Office. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's like a single cam. They have these cuts where they have like a different angle that they show you occasionally, or they'll focus in on the person's face in kind of the way The Office does, where there's a scene where the person sort of glances at the camera. And there are scenes that are like that, and a lot of scenes that aren't. Quasi-documentary, but yeah. I think that's an important thing to note because it adds to the aesthetic of the film. Probably a good segue to just dive into that. They called it ninja cams. They, being the director, Catherine Mm -hmm. Bigelow and her camera crew, set up cameras all over scenes and didn't always tell the actors where they were so that they would capture all these different angles. And what happens is during this scene, they're constantly switching between viewpoints so that you're you're seeing different things. And it does create this, I wouldn't say quite jarring because it doesn't move that fast always, but you're definitely seeing all angles of the scene. Um, mm. You know, low angles, high angles from the vantage of someone who's on a balcony or looking out a window of a car. Like it's it's kind of all over the place. I would actually call it jarring. I had a difficult time watching this film, not because of the narrative. Physically, it made me a little nauseous because the camera jumped around so much and it was so shaky. I could understand that, yeah. I, there was a point where I turned it off because I, I was like, I'm getting a little sick watching this. I can't do it. It's a lot of work to edit all that together. <laughs> yes, which is why I think it won for best film editing, I believe. I think so too. I, I definitely wrote it down a little bit later. Um, so what did you call that again? They called it the Ninja Cam. So that is what the crew called it. I don't think there's an official name for it, but basically they hid cameras all around. They said like they'd pop up like little ninjas. They, the actors would be acting in a scene. They'd turn around and there'd be a camera, you know, somewhere where they didn't expect it. And they were constantly moving them between takes and things like that to just capture different things. And I think that is in part, which we'll get to later, why the movie won some awards is because technically it's very new and different. I didn't know that. That is a great piece of trivia. I'm assuming you watched the director's commentary to get that? I did. It's Catherine Bigelow and the guy who wrote the script, I think Mark Bull. He was actually embedded with some soldiers in Iraq, a bomb squad. And well, let's let's dive into that. Let's give us some movie facts, Dave. This movie was released uh, September 4th, 2008. Its runtime is 131 minutes. It had a budget of $15 million. Its box office was $49.2 million. That's hardly anything, especially for a Best Picture winner. Uh, I believe at the time that this won, it was the lowest grossing Best Picture winner. Did you see this in the theater? Exactly what I was thinking. I did not see this in the theater either. Yeah, I didn't see this in the theater because I had an aversion to the Iraq War stuff. I chafe with really jingoistic movies, such as the Alamo. (laughs) I didn't want to see this. I was like, I don't need to go see a war movie. I should have watched it earlier is what I'm getting, getting at. Yeah, well, I think what I'm getting at is I don't think a lot of people saw this in the theater Mm-mm, with no, the, you know, close to 50 million in the box office revenue. I mm-hmm. definitely did not. You said you just watched it for the first time pretty recently. Mm-hmm. Yep. I definitely saw it on DVD uh, maybe a year or two after it came out. And I remember liking it even then. It's a good suspense movie. It's a solid actioner. So the writer and director. So the director is Catherine Bigelow and she's done Near Dark, Point Break, which I love, 
Strange Days, which I also love, but recognize that that is a controversial statement. And she did Zero Dark Thirty, which I have not seen. Have you seen any of those? Yes, I've seen Zero Dark Thirty. You haven't seen Point Break. So she did the original Point Break or yes, the new one? she did the original. I, I have seen that. Yeah, that's her claim to fame. I mean, she, she did like sort of indie-ish stuff and then made Point Break and everyone's like, what? Do you know who, who she's married to? I knew who she was married to. I guess that's true. I don't know she was she married to James Cameron. Yeah. Who's she married to now? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> yeah, she was married to James Cameron. Yeah. Because Avatar came out the same year. So the narrative for this year was Bigelow versus Cameron in the media. But in real life, they were very cordial to each other. I mean, in certain ways, depending on how you look at this, he trounced her in the box office. <laughs> That's an understatement, John. <laughs> um, well, I just want to make a couple points here. So Near Dark is a classic cult vampire movie about a Midwesterner who joins a cult of vampires because he wants to date this girl. It is impossible to find. I've been trying to find it. I've been trying to find it. It's not available streaming or anything. Uh, so I have never seen it, but it's on my list of movies that if I at a yard sale and someone's selling it, I would yank it up so fast. <laughs> And then I highly recommend Strange Days. It's about the new millennia switching over and virtual reality. And then it's really wild. <laughs> so so highly recommend. And um, I, I think there's one film we didn't mention that I think was actually nominated for some Oscars, I believe, was Detroit, which is... I don't know anything about it. Yeah. It's about a race ride in Detroit in the 1960s. I've seen it, but it's been a bit. I haven't seen it. It's Okay. So the writer is Mark Boyle. You just mentioned him. Um, he's also He also wrote Zero Dark Thirty, Triple Frontier, and then he consulted, I think this is hilarious, on After Earth, a terrible, terrible Will Smith movie. What, what did he consult on for After Earth? They're like, tell us about your experiences in war in the Middle East. I mean, it's good work if you can get it, <laughs> but I have no idea. Yes. That movie is, is rotten. <laughs> I have not seen it. Don't. I mean, if you, if you want to make fun of it, go ahead, but don't don't like sit down to actually watch it. Not going to. I think just to reiterate what we said before, he was actually embedded with a bomb squad in Iraq. I'd say some of the detail was pulled from his experiences, and we can talk about that as we go through things. It is very dramatized to make that clear. So there are there's a lot of things you would never do as a bomb squad operator that are in this movie solely because they kind of look cool. It's a film. So The Hurt Locker was nominated for nine Oscars. It won six. So it won for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, and, we were correct, John, Best Film Editing. It's it's sort of a new style of film editing and pulling things together, which is what we've seen in many of the films we've watched in the past. They're, they're a hybrid of different things where they have like a new technical piece that helps push them over the edge to get that win for the best picture. And I think this is another example. That's of that. really funny because Avatar was also super new, but it lost out. <laughs> well, so Avatar. Okay. So let's just run down the movies you went up against and then okay. get into that one. So I guess the Oscar competition for best film. Uh, these are the films that went up against this year. So Avatar, the blind side district nine and education and glorious bastards, precious, a serious man, up and up in the air. John, I want you to do the whole name for Precious. No, no, no. Precious, based on the novel Push by yeah, Sapphire? Yeah, the most ridiculous name ever. But here's the thing. Good for Sapphire. 
I guess she's like, I want the byline. It's in the Good contract. For her, man. She probably sold a bunch of books because of it. I haven't seen that movie. That is one I don't want to watch. My understanding is it's about someone's life where they're basically abused all their life. I do not want to watch a movie for two hours about that. Although maybe it is very telling of that person's experience and I should. But at the same time, I don't really want to put myself. Same. That's a huge hole. And it's one of the films I feel bad of not seeing. And yes, I feel bad about not seeing a bunch of films. (laughs) Yeah. I think I've seen most of the other ones. Maybe not all of them. I really like District 9. I don't exactly know why it's in this list. <laughs> I don't. It is something a little different, and I like it because it's this weird little sci-fi indie movie with um, really good analogies to apartheid in South Africa. Avatar, I think we're going to talk about right now. It is the highest grossing movie of all time. So when I mentioned that James Cameron, who directed Avatar, trounced his ex-wife in the box office, this movie pulled in like, billion, whereas her movie pulled in a paltry $48 million or whatever it was, $49. Avatar. I saw it in the theater. The 3D at the time was sort of a new technology. I think there were a few other movies that had been in 3D, but this one was the first one that looked good and didn't do cheesy effects with it. And people loved it. I saw it there too. I think that is the best use of 3D in a film I've ever seen. I agree. You don't see Avatar in the theater in 3D. You are missing a major component of what made it. I agree. That is why I think it's gotten so much attention. I had not watched it since I'd seen it in the theater in 2008. I watched it again last week. I actually still like the film, but it's kind of forgettable. Dave, your thoughts? I also hadn't seen it since I saw it in a theater. I think it's an okay action movie with some really great concepts it is also 30% montage. <laughs> uh, it probably needed to be multiple movies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's okay. I, I can't really remember anything from it. It like washed over me. I have just general feeling of like, this is entertaining. And then it's over. Only line that I can remember is, um, I see you. I, I see yeah. you. <laughs> uh, I was yep. surprised when Michelle Rodriguez showed up. I love Michelle Rodriguez. I was like, yes, another movie with Michelle Rodriguez. <laughs> the cast is actually kind of somewhat well-known. Um, Sam Worthington. You know, it, that's fine. We don't have to get into that. It's got Sigourney Weaver in it. Zoe, Zalda- um, Zoe Saldano. Which, interestingly enough, she was in the top two highest grossing movies of all time. Oh, wait, that's right. She, she's in um, Endgame. She's mm-hmm. Gamora in the Guardians of the Galaxy. So she's a sleeper hit because people don't think about her as being in the two top grossing movies of all time, probably even more than that because all the Marvel movies are in the top 20. She's she's someone you can bankroll on. She's in MCU, Avatar, and Star Trek. If she could do Star Wars. Jurassic Park. <laughs> Jurassic Park, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, she's good. I like her a lot. Good for her. Uh <laughs> Yep. This race was essentially Avatar versus this movie. Avatar, technically great. Special effects, good. I watched it on my HDR TV. Looks amazing. Storyline, kind of boring. And that's where it sort of falls apart. But it's well done. I don't think it's it was really ever a serious mm-hmm. contender. It just had so much money behind it. 
It's also got four sequels in the works. Yeah, I just read about this. Dave, do you have any interest in that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll go see them. So I read that number two and three are pretty much done filming. Uh, and they're okay. not going to make the fourth one until they see how the second and third one do. Good for them. <laughs> I think the second one was supposed to come mm-hmm. out this year, but because of COVID, it's going to come out next year around Christmas time. Yeah, same. Understanding. Um, I'm going to go see them. I'm interesting to just see how you pick up a story that is over over and ten done years with. later, like for uh, real. Like, like, all right. So let's just let's just get into this. Uh, I don't want to make this all of uh, Avatar podcast, but it feels like it's important to talk about it. I do feel like it's significant, even though it may not have as much as a pop culture influence as a two billion dollar movie should have. Typically, when there's this large of a gap between a first movie and a second movie, that second movie is no bueno. <laughs> It's just the audience is gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the audience is gone. The creative juice is gone. No one has even thought of this movie in eight years. Yeah, I mean, there is a theme park in Asia, an Avatar theme park. Uh, and they're releasing a video game. But all of this feels like they let it sit dormant. And now they're trying to ramp up into it. And they're putting all this trust into James Cameron. And let's be fair. I also trust James Cameron. This guy has made some mega hits. Titanic. Abyss. Yep. T2. Aliens. But let's be honest, like, this is super shaky ground. Super shaky. (laughs) Yeah, because I think they're going back to the same planet to tell the next story. So the next one's obviously going to be they're going to come back and try to take the unobtainium again. Uh, It's water-themed. Surprise. Great. (laughs) Dude loves water. Let's (laughs) give it to him. (laughs) Um, All right. So talking about, about Avatar, I wanted to play a game, John. I want before we move on. I think the Avatar movie I want to see is the Last Airbender. Yes, one hundred percent remake though that crappy one that M Night Shyamalan remade. Netflix has a live action yeah. series in the works. Go, go watch it. It's an amazing, amazing series. Okay, I want to play a game. If you get them wrong, John, you're going to explode. I'm sorry. This is a Saul Saul like game. <laughs> I'm going to give you two movies, one the original and then okay. a sequel, and you have to guess how long it took to get the sequel out. How many years passed? Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. Eight years, maybe? I, I I don't know. All right. Fifteen years. Fuck you. I'm going to Hollywood. Fifteen. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You've close. just exploded. Okay. I am sorry, John. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> was it the same director both times? Yes. Who, who yes. was it? I can't remember. John Carpenter. Yeah. Okay. I love the first one. The second one's cheesy goodness. I know I know a bit about that. We're going to skip it because this is not okay. the right time. Psycho to Psycho 2. Psycho came out in like the 60s. Mm-hmm. I don't actually know anything about Psycho 2. I've never seen that one. Uh, actually, I'm going to say 40 years. 40. That's a that's probably a decent guess. Uh, 23 years. 23. Okay. Yeah, I believe Mick Garris directed that. Tron, the Tron Legacy. The game has changed, son of thing. All right. I think the first Tron came out in the early 80s, and Tron Legacy came out probably about 2010 Mm -hmm. so maybe 22 years i don't know 28 years 28 years wow yeah crazy right um yeah so i i mean some of these i haven't seen psycho 2 so i can tell it's not any good but i can say that escape from la is not near the caliber of escape new york and i have good memories of tron legacy but mostly because of the soundtrack (laughs) i like tron legacy i don't think anyone else does they're supposed to do a third one and the Tron animated series, which I think you can watch on Disney Plus, is also pretty good. 
but I don't think anyone watched any of that stuff other than me. Uh, well, you're a connoisseur. I guess so. Uh, I did not actually like the first Tron movie that much, just to put that out there. I, I do. So we're, we're opposite on that. I really like it. But it's dated. Like, it feels like a nostalgia thing at this point. So other movies that came out this year, just so we set the stage, The Hangover, a movie that I think is funny, but not as funny as everyone else thinks. Zombieland, a movie that I think is funny, but not as funny as everyone else thinks. And The Human Centipede, a movie that I think is hilarious. I'm, I'm joking on that last one. I've never seen it. <laughs> I have not either. I do like Zombieland and The Hangover. Eh, whatever. I could do without it. <laughs> the Human Centipede? Yeah. That, I just thought it would be funny to mention that this came out the same year as like major movies. The question is, has The Human Centipede made as big of a contribution to pop culture as Avatar? I would have to ask my Gen Z co-workers if they've ever heard of it. <laughs> oh, God, we're old. Uh, <laughs> let's Let's dive in to the hot dog section okay so if you're a first time listener you should know we eat movie themed hot dogs while watching these movies david how is your hot dog dressed on the red carpet this evening i am so excited to talk about this recipe i didn't think it was going to turn out i was going way abreast (laughs) oh boy yeah so i made the explosion dog it is a deconstructed hot dog and bun served on a bed of quote edible sand And the edible sand is made out of ground nuts and potato chips and just a little bit of nacho cheese powder. Essentially, I just ripped the hot dog and everything apart and made it look like they exploded. The edible sand stuff was pretty good, actually. (laughs) I'm just like the crumbs in in the bottom of the bag. Yeah, with nuts. Yeah, I gave it like a 3.5 out of 5. It was better than I thought. One of my weirder ones. And if you're really hungry, John... I would recommend eating it with some Anthony Mackie and cheese. <laughs> tell, me, tell me how you make an Anthony Mackie and cheese. I, it's New Orleans style. I don't know. I got to think about it. <laughs> I just made that up on it's the on, spot. It's on a po' boy. I don't know. Like... <laughs> it's on a po- mac and cheese po' boy? I would eat it. Like, uh, I mean, I don't think it's good. Like, that's the thing with mac and cheese, like pizza and mac and cheese sandwiches. They're really not good. They're just entertaining. <laughs> John, what delicious hot dog did you make? I actually modified a recipe for lamb meatballs. So lamb is a just a meat that's typically eaten in the Middle East. Gets kosher, gets halal if prepared correctly. I'm pretty sure people in the Middle East could eat this. It's just lamb, tahini, mint, lemon, cumin. I shaped it into a hot dog and then cooked it. I also created a tahini mustard to go with it. I saw a recipe for some harissa ketchup, but I genuinely don't like ketchup on my hot dogs anyway. So you could go that route if you wanted to. Tahini mustard, really easy. I think it's just a little bit of tahini, maybe one part tahini, four parts mustard, and a little bit of honey. I added some cucumbers and some mint leaves to top it off. Actually, pretty good. I mean, it looked good. You sent me the photo. So do you like harissa? I am okay with it. I... Again, ketchup as a condiment, I don't usually put it on my hot dogs. So I think I've had harissa ketchup on french fries before and thought it was fine. Yeah. I like harissa, but in small doses because I I struggle with spicy foods and it's too spicy for me. Yeah. I kind of feel that way about tahini a little bit. Like it can really overload something and I don't necessarily like that. I don't know what that is. Peanut-y taste that it can be if it's, if there's too much of it in there. Who did you adapt this, adapt this recipe from? Oh, yes. We should give credit to Molly Baz. Well, I guess she was. Mm-hmm. Formerly formerly a BA Kitchen, but now she has her own Patreon and yep. uh, YouTube channel, and she cooks pretty good food. 
Yeah, so I stole it from her cookbook, which I think is called Cook This Book. I uh, just <laughs> modified the recipe a little bit. Well, that's a pretty good name. Okay, let's talk about the actors in this film. Jeremy Renner plays Sergeant First Class William James, and you might know him from movies such as Dahmer. He also plays Hawkeye in the MCU. Hansel and Gretel, a horrible, horrible movie that I recommend you watch with a big group of friends. I've brought that up previously. It's so bad, it's good. American Hustle and Arrival. I do like me some Arrival. Yeah, Arrival's really good. Any thoughts on Jeremy Renner before I jump into some trivia? Okay, I have an odd story about Jeremy Renner. Okay. When I was in Thailand, I was walking down the street going to a McDonald's because I like going to McDonald's in other countries because they always have the weird local flavor of whatever it is. And Jeremy Renner's face in relief is on a purse store. <laughs> so there's this big sign. I think, I don't know if they stole Jeremy Renner's face and just used it on their sign. And it might not just have been a purse store. It might've been like a leather goods store. I was like, what the fuck is Jeremy Renner selling leather goods in Asia? And I just didn't know about this. I think I even tweeted it at him and asked if it was him, but he did not respond to me. <laughs> That's really funny. I'll have to dig out that photo. I think it's on, I put it online somewhere. It was an archery store. I don't have any solid thoughts on Jeremy Renner. I'm like, he's an actor. He's in movies. Some of them like, I really, it's like, he's like a blank in my brain. He seems fine. Also, one other Jeremy Renner story. Amazon has partnered with celebrities to sell things like in a celebrity style store. Like Jeremy Renner likes this. Jeremy Renner has an Amazon store what? that you can go to, to get like knives or something. Like he like, it's like semi outdoorsy kind of gear that he's, gathered into a list that he sells I, i'm not really sure but he's got a store on amazon also good for him man make that money i'm trying to think what would be in my store and it it would be really weird <laughs> yeah it's like what do i constantly have sent to my house in my um <laughs> amazon subscriptions i'm like it's like toothbrush heads um <laughs> yeah the laundry detergent comes every few months <laughs> okay so there's some good trivia on Jeremy Renner, so I'm going to run through some of the biggies. Before he landed his big break, he was a makeup artist. He said that he really enjoyed the gig because he only had to work a couple hours a day, and it freed him up to go audition for parts. So that is awesome. That is something I didn't know about him, and let me respect him just a little bit more. Like special effects makeup? No, or just... no, just people. He did stage, so he knew how to do stage makeup, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I had no idea. So he played uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, the notorious serial killer. And he said that part made it difficult for him to get dates because the wrong type of <laughs> women wanted to date him <laughs> after that. Weird. It's really weird. Uh, yeah. And then I think this is pretty well known with MCU fans, but he admitted that while he was happy to do Avengers, and that's the original one, he felt that Hawkeye was really snubbed for screen time. And I have to agree with that. Well, there's a Hawkeye show coming out where he's going to pass the bow and arrow on to the next person. Yeah. Uh, quick, John, who's your favorite Avenger? Captain America, I guess, yeah. if we're talking about the MCU series. Yeah, he's, he's up there. I am a big fan of Vision. Huge fan. Interesting. All right. Mm -hmm. Captain America is number two, though, so we're close. We're going to move on to Anthony Mackie, my man. He plays Sergeant J.T. Sanborn. You might remember him from such films as 8 Mile, Brother to Brother, Million Dollar Baby, a movie we covered. He plays Falcon in the MCU. He's also in We Are Marshall and Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. 
Any of those stand out to you? You know, I saw Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter and remember zero from it. I don't even remember who was in it, and I definitely don't remember Anthony Mackie being there. Yeah, I don't remember it at all, because I never saw it. That's not a movie I want to see. (laughs) It's interesting to see the combo here of Renner, Mackie, and then another MCU alum in Guy Pearce in this movie as well. I mean, this MCU's just everywhere. This movie has a lot of MCU people in it. I generally have good feelings about Anthony Mackie. I think he's really funny. If you watch him in interview, he interviews, he's great. And there's some other reason for that. One of those is, is that he had a bar down the street from me. It's now since closed, but I would hang out there and do trivia. They had awesome New Orleans food, awesome trivia, great aesthetic. I love that place. And then it closed and I got sad. Was it a COVID closure? No, no. This is a couple years back. He moved from Brooklyn to New Orleans and he he's from New Orleans. And so the bars closed because he didn't live there anymore but it was a great experience it was called no bar some other trivia about him uh before his role as falcon he was scared of heights he had to get over it isn't that all just special effects Dave? <laughs> I, I, I don't know <laughs> they're like we're gonna pull you up on this wire three feet off the ground we need you to be comfortable with that <laughs> uh speaking of the mcu john did you know that he did not audition for falcon I did hear that. Yeah, he was simply offered the role. That was a good decision. He's a good, good actor. It's interesting to see his various different types of roles. He has serious roles. He has funnies roles. He has comedic roles. I think probably what helped him land it was the movie we're talking about today. He's really good in The Hurt Locker. He said he was disappointed that he couldn't go shirtless in his MCU debut because he had worked out for five months in prep. (laughs) And you know what? I get it. (laughs) It's only Chris Evans, man. It's a Chris Evans gun show. It it really is. (laughs) It's a Chris Evans peck show, really. Uh, Two more things here. I'm generalizing this, but it appears that his passion project is to make a Jesse Owens movie. He really wanted to play Jesse Owens, and it looked like it got off the ground, it fell apart, and it got off the ground, it fell apart. There is a Jesse Owens movie. It's called Race. I did not know that. I have not seen it. Yeah, I clearly don't know anything about it. There was a lot of articles on him trying to be Jesse Owens is what I'm getting at. So clearly a passion project. Gotcha. It, okay. I think it would have been really cool to see him. I think he might be too old for it now. On your left. <laughs> on your left. That's, that's a good reference. Anyway, the last thing is he's a skilled carpenter and house builder because he did that with his father growing up. And he has mentioned several times that he would like to do a HGTV show. Could be entertaining. It could. He's an entertaining guy. I would watch it. So moving on, let's set the scene For when this movie came out. The movie came out in 2008. The movie takes place around 2003, which is just after the U.S. invaded Iraq. I'm going to give what's probably an overly simplified version of what happened at the time for those of you that don't know or just kind of want a reminder. Much of Iraq's munitions disappeared, in quotes, in the ensuing chaos after the liberation. Much of it ended up in the hands of what we now know as insurgency, And those were a mixture of, you know, there's some Saddam Hussein loyalists, there were regional terror groups like Al-Qaeda and other bad actors, some sponsored by Iran, who were basically terrorizing the region to destabilize it in in an attempt to take control of different parts of the country or even the whole country, really. These groups viewed the U.S. troop presence as an occupying force, and it's probably not entirely incorrect, as a number of troops were charged with war crimes for killing civilians and other things while there. The U.S. and and its allies are not entirely innocent either. Not that I'm supporting terrorism or any of that either. I'm anti-violence. Okay. One of the guerrilla tactics the insurgency used involved planting roadside bombs and other improvised explosive devices, IEDs, as we talked about before, 
just to inflict casualties. And, and that is why we have a movie about this, bomb techs diffusing these IEDs, because it, we heard about it in the news nightly for years. And it really did force the U.S. military to reevaluate its strategies. The U.S. military is really good at coming in, bowling things over, bombing stuff. But when it comes to this like ground strategy and winning the hearts and minds of the populace, they suck at it. Guerrilla warfare and street-to-street fighting they're bad at. House-to-house mm-hmm. house fighting even, mm-hmm. so. Okay. Yeah, so I guess the recap of that, Too Long Did Not Read, is it was relevant when it came out. <laughs> yep. We just heard about it a lot. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, let's make a movie on the subject that we're, we're talking about nightly. Okay, let's get into this movie. The Hurt Locker opens up with a quote from journalist Chris Hedges. The rush of battle is often a potent and lethal addiction, for war is a drug. That really sets the scene for the whole movie. That quote, in addition to the name of the film, The Hurt Locker, positions this as sort of a, a tragedy. For those who don't know, The Hurt Locker is slang for like a place you go when you're severely injured. Would you agree with that? Yes and no. I think the aspect of war being a drug is really mostly true for the main character, okay. Jeremy Renner's character, and his addiction to it causes problems for the other two characters in this movie. That's sort of how I see that. They are victims of his addiction. Okay, got it. Uh, I'm sure we'll get deeper into that as we go. The actual story starts with an introduction to a bomb tech squad, and they are a well-oiled machine. There are three of them. The team consists of Staff Sergeant Thompson, Guy Pierce, Sergeant J.T. Sanborn, Anthony Mackey, and Specialist Owen Eldridge, Brian Garrity. When you were introduced to this team, because you just saw this movie recently for the yes. first time. Yes. What did you think would happen in this movie? <laughs> this is a, that's a great question. I thought this movie was rah, 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 go USA, which is why I avoided mm-hmm. it. I thought it was about a hot shot, bomb defusal person coming I in. I mean, it kind of is, but yeah. Setting the scenes and showing everyone that you can be a wild American and get away with everything. So when this movie started, I was like, oh, Guy Pierce is dead. <laughs> and then I thought, they're not going to kill Guy Pierce. Are you kidding me? You know how expensive he is as an actor, especially at this time period? He's the star of the show. Maybe he just gets hurt and he comes back in the third act to save everything. I was wrong, John. <laughs> yeah, so this is akin, well, I'm going to ruin Game of Thrones for you. When you're watching Game of Thrones and Sean Bean, biggest actor in in the TV series, dies at the end of season one. This is akin to that, where you've got the biggest actor in the movie dying in the first five minutes. It was really wild. I, I couldn't believe it. They're like, we can only afford you for five minutes. Then we're going to kill you. <laughs> but here's the thing. They do that again. This is a really good tactic to throw you off in this film. They did it later on with Ralph Fiennes. So, so yes, Catherine Bigelow's like, I'm killing all the stars. We can only afford them for a day. <laughs> it's a smart tactic. We'll put them all over the trailers, though. Because <laughs> like the, tra- yeah. the start of the trailer yeah. is I think Guy, like, Pierce. Guy Pierce is like top build. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, man. She's so smooth, that marketing team. <laughs> That's good. I mean, it also adds some element of surprise. You're like, okay, they marketed that these guys are in the film. Yeah, they're in the film. But they also die fast. <laughs> <laughs> Her films are very Hitchcockian. And what you mean by that is they set up a scene. They show you all the things that could go wrong. So you know the consequences. And then they just ratchet up the tension slowly, slowly, slowly. In this case, it's like Psycho when they kill the main star 20 minutes into the film. So to recap, because we hinted at this, the team is called in to defuse a bomb, goes way south, their leader is killed. I think it's important to note that Eldridge 
sees a person with a cell phone, they make it known that cell phones can be used to set off bombs. And he's not sure if this person is going to set the bomb off or is just a civilian with a cell phone because that is one of the key issues in these wars. Like you don't know who's a combatant and who is just a civilian because they all look the same. So the bomb goes off and this haunts Eldridge because he blames himself because he could have shot this person and and sort of saved the day, prevented the bomb from going off. Mm. Yeah. Or at least he thinks that. We don't know that for sure, actually, because I think in the way they cut it, you see another person with a cell phone that I think hits the button. So Eldridge may have made the right move, but he doesn't know that and it haunts him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it haunts him so much that a combat psychologist actually visits him on a regular basis to try to talk him through it. What did you think about that, Dave? I thought that was, that's got to be the worst job to have if you have a soul of any kind, because your job as a psychologist there is to make sure the soldiers are well enough just to keep fighting, not to go home, not to take it easy, not to think about and process. I mean, maybe that's part of it, but really your job is to get them back out there. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it in that particular way, but yeah, it sounds incredibly terrible. In terms of scenes, I kind of knew this dude was not going to make it. I know we're jumping all over. This film is a little bit heavy-handed in some ways, but let's keep going. We'll get to that when that actually happens in the narrative. So... Sergeant First Class, William James, again, this is Jeremy Reiner, he shows up and he takes over leadership of the team. He is extremely skilled at his job, but he's also reckless, and he routinely puts his team in danger. Over the next couple of scenes, we are shown him basically defusing bombs in a way that he didn't really have to. And he's rewarded for that in some sense, uh, but it puts him at odds with Anthony Mackie's character because Anthony Mackie's character is by the books. He's trying to lean into if he does everything correctly, he's going to make it out alive. So it's very different than the previous leader too. And what Dave is saying is there's these moments where Anthony Mackie's character is just like, you know what? We can call in the engineers. Like we don't even have to take care of this one. The people in the area have already been evacuated. It's not our job anymore. Let's just go. Mm-hmm. And James's character, this is where he's addicted to to this kind of excitement, I guess you could say, and wants to go in there and defuse that bomb because that's what gets him to tick. He's putting himself and everyone else at risk. And there's also, you know, some other things that are kind of inaccurate there where it's just the three of them and no other soldiers are around. Like, that's not going to happen. There's some inaccuracies here with like what's happening in war. But before we go on, I think it is important to know that these bomb squads did go out and defuse like several bombs a day so that is not uncommon i don't think it was nearly as dramatic as what you know we're shown here but it did happen wow a lot i mean i thought they might do like one every couple of days and you have you're saying here they're like three or four i i think they were saying like three or four a day but some of them you know they're kind of minor things like here's unexploded ordinance you know like a bomb dropped in this house and it didn't explode they have to go take care of it mm-hmm. so it's not always like an ied but you know like they were doing this very regularly Yeah. I mean, in this film, all the bombs they defuse are big and dramatic. Yeah. (laughs) And well shot. Like, let's not, we're glossing over this stuff, but to be fair, it's it's really difficult to talk about it because it's five minutes of Jeremy Renner cutting up a car trying to find a wire and it's tense as all hell, but what are we going to analyze? Do you like the blue of the wire? Do you like (laughs) the red of the wire? Is he sweating enough? (laughs) Part of the tension is also... There's all these civilians lingering around, some of them videotaping things, and they don't know who's a bad actor and who's not. Mm -hmm. So 
the longer he's in there trying to defuse a bomb, the more risk they have of someone showing up and taking pot shots at them, or they're just like exposed to danger longer than they need to be. So, so that's where some of the other tension comes in as well. So you have a note here about a bomb maker mastermind. One of the first scenes, Jeremy Renner, which is also fucking ridiculous. I just want to make this clear. He's like diffusing a bomb or a mortar or something like that. That would have been probably fired out of a plane or dropped. It's a big bomb. He unscrews the top of it and he takes out this blasting cap that would set it off. Then he sees a little wire running over to the side of him and pulls on it. I'm like, you fucking idiot. You're going to pull on the wire of a bomb? That would totally set it off. <laughs> you know. So he pulls on the wire of this bomb and five other bombs come out of the ground. So in this scene, we see a guy looking out the window down at him working on these bombs. He starts to run down the stairs because he is going to try to set off the bombs because there's this wire snaking over through this building and he's got a battery in his hand. So if he presses the end of the wire to the battery, it'll spark the charge and set the thing off. And Jeremy Renner diffuses all the bombs before this guy can do that. And they look at each other and the guy runs away. I feel like several times throughout the movie, you come across this bomb maker's workshop at some point. It's just filled with explosives and all sorts of different things. And then at the end of the movie, there's like a big bomb attack that happens that Jeremy Renner's trying to solve. He's like, I know this guy's like, I think he can't be far given the way this bomb exploded. Like, let's go look for him. So I feel like maybe that was the big bad in the movie. He was kind of an unnamed villain. Maybe it was like one guy in this area setting off all these bombs. Did you feel that way at all? Or was that just me kind of making that connection on my own? I didn't make that connection. But what I thought was going to happen while watching this film was that they were going to eventually find the master bomb maker and kill him. That's where I thought the trajectory of it was going. And I think in a different movie, in a less interesting movie, they would have done that. Yeah, okay. I think it's a good call. I didn't realize that guy was going to set the bomb off. I missed that part completely. <laughs> yeah, he drops a little battery. I mean, I guess if you like, if you didn't know that is how that works, they didn't connect it for you. So like, you may have just seen some guy run off, but he does drop a 9-volt battery. Moving on to a little bit later in the film, while the trio is on patrol, they come across a group of British mercenaries whose truck has broken down. While lending a hand, the entire group mercenaries and the bomb squad come under sniper fire sanborn mans a sniper rifle while james does the spotting they work effortlessly together which is a shock because in the previous scene sanborn was contemplating killing james <laughs> yep um, and he punched him at some point too. yeah yeah this is punching your superior this is that's a bad thing it's <laughs> a bad thing oh i mean no matter what you do don't do that no <laughs> um I think the sniper scene is my favorite scene in the film. Interesting. Why Why do you say that? Because it, it feels like a lot is happening and a lot of tension is going on. And there's this like dichotomy. So just to break it down, Sanborn is really, really angry at James. But they are working together flawlessly to stop the sniper attack. This moment at the end of the sniper scene where James gets a juice box <laughs> And instead of drinking it, he gives it to Sanborn first, which shows that this guy is super reckless, but there's also a part of him that is a good person. So it adds this dynamic to it that's really difficult to explain, and, it, and it's probably why this film does so well and why Jeremy Renner was praised for it, because James is an incredibly complex character. I think it just shows that he cares about his unit. But he personally has this drive to solve the bombs that 
makes him reckless. Somehow he has to solve the bomb. You know, like you see that several times where it's like, hey, not our job anymore. We can go. We don't have to be here. We don't have to do this. He's like, no, no, no. I got it. I'm going to do it. He's like so driven and has to do this. This is his addiction um, that he will get other people hurt as a result of it. And what I also liked about the sniper scene is it's kind of funny because they make fun of the guy who lost the wrench. That's why they're there. Yeah. They don't have a wrench to change their flat tire, the mercenaries. He threw it at someone. Yeah, he threw it so And then Anthony Mackie says to him, you know you can just shoot people here. <laughs> uh, and then there's also um, Ralph Fiennes, isn't it? He was in our... Oh, he was in um, Schindler's List. He, he's the bad guy in Schindler's List. He shows up and I was like, oh, this guy's going to be huge in this. Uh, they're not going to fake me out again like they did with Guy Pierce. Wrong. <laughs> he just gets Picked shot off and falls from a over. sniper at like a quarter mile. Yeah. I was like, you got me again, Catherine Bigelow. You're so good at this. Uh, yeah. It's like the bigger the name, the faster they die. <laughs> I've got him for only one hour. Uh, yeah. But anyway, I, I like this scene a lot because it just felt like a lot was happening. I really enjoyed it. The other piece to point out here is in this scene, I think this shows you that the James character even more depth than what we talked about here is so Eldridge is still mm-hmm. kind of shell shocked from not pulling the trigger to save his commander. You know, Eldridge is sort of the rookie of the group while his teammates are up on a ridge with the sniper rifle covering of where the enemies were. Some, someone has outflanked them and, and come around the side. He spots the guy and he's like, I'm not really sure what to do. He, he doesn't have any confidence. This is where James just says, I want you to take care of it. Make good decisions. And he does. He takes the guy out and saves several lives in the process. And I think that starts to give him his confidence mm-hmm. back, too. And you see that James understands this as a leader, that he needs to make the decision and do this to get his confidence. It's also in this scene that I realized the word buddy is used like 20 times in this film. I think it's also almost a little patronizing in this instance, mm-hmm. but not in a in a bad way. It's definitely like the father talking to the son. Yeah. You could make good decisions, buddy. Yeah. You ne- they never make good decisions. <laughs> <laughs> Later, after they're saved from the sniper, they are sent to a warehouse. And it turns out that this is a massive bob-making warehouse. The psychologist goes with them. Uh, and they find the corpse of a child. The child has been surgically implanted with many bombs. Right, The child's corpse, so it's dead, just to be clear. James thinks the corpse belongs to Beckham. Now, Beckham is a character we haven't talked about, but Beckham's a young boy who hangs out at the army base, and James has befriended this kid. The kid sells DVDs, he plays soccer. It's an indicator that James cares about people, but he also has a screw loose. Yes, because he thinks it's Beckham, Mm -hmm. and it is not. Yeah, but you can't tell on screen. I, I think you can sort of tell, and I think that's why you see Sanborn and some other people be like, it's not. He's like, and they keep saying, yeah, he thinks it's Beckham. Uh, I think they kind of just let him go with it. But I think that's where he's he's been at war too long. And he's likely suffering from PTSD because he's starting to see things that aren't really there. What ends up happening is James defuses the bomb and he wraps the child up and takes a child with him. As they're getting ready to leave, the psychologist who's being friendly with people is killed by an IED. John, the question I wanted to ask you was like, what was the film trying to say with the psychologist being killed in that manner? I mean, I guess it depends on how you read it. I felt like the psychologist should have never been there. Mm-hmm. 
I think he had a talk with Eldridge earlier, and Eldridge is like, you don't understand what it's like to be out from behind this wall. You know, like, you're safe on base, we're out there, we're in the shit, it's hard. And he's just acting like an American would act in a normal neighborhood, talking to the local people, saying like, all right, we need you to move along, it's not safe here. I mean, it turns out he's right, but he also has no idea what he's doing and shouldn't be out there because he's not aware of this bomb or where the bomb might even be and how he probably shouldn't be interacting with these people. So I think he's like this guy in his ivory tower that tells everyone how they should act and behave and what to think about when he finally gets out into the real world, he's done with in like three minutes. I knew this guy was dead as soon as he showed up on scene. I was not shocked that he blew up and I couldn't tell you why it just like, it's like, I just kind of knew it. I just thought it was part of Eldred's character arc. Like, he was going to have to go through more before he, he came to the end of getting to leave, or realizing that maybe uh, James wasn't someone you wanted to follow. The second point I wanted to make sort of has to do with the reading of this scene. I think on a cursory level, you could read this as, if you're nice to people, they're going to betray you. But I think if you look at it in the context of the film, what the film's saying is that you just don't know what's going to happen. Because there are people who are aggressive and are killed there are people friendly who are killed you just do not know what's going to happen there is a fog surrounding everything well i mean you could say he is definitely the opposite of james james doesn't die this guy who just one time goes out from behind the wall gets blown Mm -hmm. up yeah the next scene james remember he is angry because he thinks beckham is dead sneaks off the base and he goes to where he thinks beckham's home is and he starts questioning a man who lives there And he wants to know who's responsible for killing Beckham. Through this conversation, he realizes he's at the wrong location and he flees back to the army base. So John, what is going on in this scene? I I think this gets back to like, you have no idea who the combatants are Mm -hmm. and who they aren't. And then also he was trying to communicate with the guy who runs the DVD stall that Beckham was selling DVDs at. And the guy's like, I don't know this Beckham character, although Beckham was there many days of the week. So he thinks he's lying and it's probably just a communication breakdown in some capacity. You know, how did you take this? So I, I took it as a sign that James is reckless, even outside of bomb making. So when the context of the bombs, he's clearly like, he's obsessed with figuring them out and being the best. This also shows that he's willing to do things without thinking so it's just it ratches up the character a little bit. I mean, I, he also wants justice. So I think there's an element to that too. It's someone he knows, sort of. This is again where I thought there was like a villain out and about that he was going to try to find and stop. Like this also led me to believe that. I wonder if he also thought that. We might, we might be reading too much into the scene. So soon after this, the trio, the team, they're called to assist in a petrol tanker explosion. And while in the location, they realized that the person responsible had to be nearby the, the tanker to detonate it. James decides to go looking for the insurgents uh, in the nearby neighborhood. And this is despite it not being his job. Just to set the scene again, there was a bunch of people on this scene. There were people whose job it is to go hunting for insurgents. There's a whole unit of soldiers next. Yeah, they're just there to make sure no one else gets blown up and make sure it's safe for other people. Eldridge agrees to go with Sanborn, and it's clear that Eldridge agrees because he's still reeling from the death of the psychologist. Sanborn tries to dissuade them. He fails, and he's forced to go out in basically the city looking for this maybe fictional bomber. 
So as the team snakes their way through the neighborhood, they end up being separated. Eldridge is captured. Afterward, James and Sandboard manage to spot the kidnappers and they rescue Eldridge. But in the process, James accidentally shoots Eldridge in the leg. They are able to rec- rescue him, but he's severely hurt. So my question is, were you confused at all by this scene? The only part that I thought was confusing was the gunshots at the end, which I guess Same. is maybe just the confusion mm-hmm. of many gunshots because it's unclear what has happened until we see that Eldridge is shot. Yeah, because the way it's set up, I was like, did someone shoot him? They shot him and ran away. I couldn't tell what was going. I was also a little shocked that James fired at the two insurgents who were dragging Eldridge away. I was pretty confused. I, I don't have anything other else to say other than like okay (laughs) yeah um that was dumb on their part yeah yeah okay so the following morning james is approached by beckham who isn't dead and james ignores beckham john what's going on here this is probably the most interesting thing in the film i think he's shocked because he was very convinced it was beckham realizes that he made some really stupid moves by going off base and then basically breaking into someone's home and threatening them with a gun. And I think he's really freaking embarrassed. And he's just like, I can't talk to this kid anymore. I think his initial thought was because he was talking to this kid, this kid ended up dead. I think he was like probably targeted because he was talking to, to GIs. And James is just like, I can't do this anymore. He may get hurt because of me. But also, again, feeling embarrassed for making some stupid decisions. I kind of feel like if he acknowledges Beckham, he might have had to acknowledge how reckless he actually is, which will be a deterrent in him uh, defusing bombs. Right. And then he has to probably go see the DVD guy again also. And he's just like, can't do any of that. I fucked up. There's a lot of talk about that on the Reddit and Quora. So if you're interested in that scene, I would recommend people checking that out. James goes and checks out Eldridge. And in pain, Eldridge is basically shouting at James. Fuck you! Thanks for saving my life! But we didn't have to go out looking for trouble to get your fucking adrenaline fix, you fuck! You got me shot because of your adrenaline fix. Uh, And he's going to have to do six months in therapy because his leg, a bone in his leg is shattered. He made it out. He did. I guess that's more than some people can say. It could have been a lot worse. His story ends, though. Like, he, like, has his confidence. He loses his confidence. He's like, oh, I'll be like this guy. And then he gets out. Well, and then he gets shot in the leg. I think he, he learns his lesson that he shouldn't be like that guy either. Yeah, exactly. I should also say he's a minor character, honestly. <laughs> like he's amazing. True. He's one of the three, but he, this is Jeremy Renner and Anthony Mackie's film. They're the driving forces behind it. It's the Renner Mackie show. Yeah. The Renner Mackie. Yeah. Just, I mean, he's going to show up in the Hawkeye. Definitely. With two days left on their mission, James and Sanborn are called to one last mission An innocent Iraqi man has been strapped with bombs and he's pleading for help getting them off. I can't do it. I do it. I can't get it off. I'm sorry, okay? You understand? I'm sorry. You hear me? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Get down! James tries to cut the locks, but fails, and the man is killed in the explosion. So, John, did you think he was going to achieve his goal, James? 
the scene is set up very much like the beginning scene where Guy Pierce is in his bomb suit and shit just goes sideways and he cannot escape the blast radius fast enough and ends up dead. So they're setting it up to feel like that too. Like there's this tension. Mm-hmm. There's this guy he's trying to save. It turns out there's a timer on the bomb and this guy's basically got a cage around him and within the cage are the bombs strapped to him and, and it's got these massive locks that they cannot cut fast enough without like a torch so that they're like this guy's fucked we're sorry and that's when you see james just say like you know i think with 30 seconds left she's like i'm sorry i cannot help you and he just runs off and they all try and they all get back as the um bomb goes off i didn't know what to make of this scene initially but it makes sense when i view the film from a whole because this scene is the impetus for Sanborn realizing he wants to get out of the army and realizing he wants to move on with his life. Because after this happens, he breaks down and tells James that he's like, I want to get married and have kids. Like, I don't, I want to get out of here. I'm done with this. After his rotation ends, James returns to his ex-wife, Connie. Is that his ex-wife? It's kind of weird. So he goes, I have an ex-wife, but she still lives at my house. (laughs) Um, I mean, I guess he's never there, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, and takes care of his son. This person is played by Evangeline Lilly, another MCU connection. (laughs) Essentially, he goes through civilian life. He goes shopping, and at the end, there's a scene with him talking to his young infant son about you're only going to love a couple things in your life. The things that he loves in his life is defusing bombs. He makes the decision to go back to Iraq the film ends with James continuing his his tragedy, his his it's just his it's what drives him. So he's back there. It's where he's happiest. Or one of the things that they show when he's back in his civilian life is that he has all these meaningless, inconsequential choices. So he goes to the grocery store. There's like a hundred boxes of cereal and his partner says, Would you get some cereal for us? And he's just like, Why am I doing this? You know, in Iraq I'm saving lives. I'm making an impact here he's like i gotta go buy cereal at the grocery store he's like this is stupid and when you frame it that way yeah getting cereal is really meaningless but it is part of life also and it's part of living life but he can't do that because he's addicted to war and has to go back do you know what i find most interesting about this film james's character does not evolve he stays the same throughout the entire thing he loves diffusing bombs he's reckless he doesn't learn from it. He just does it. There's a scene in, in their barracks where one of the other guys like pulls out a box and it's all the bomb detonation devices that he's diffused. He's like collecting them as his trophies. But I also think it's like every time one is a new puzzle for him mm-hmm. and it's like a deadly puzzle that he's trying to solve. Mm-hmm. So he goes back, right, for another tour. They start the clock over again. I don't know if it's a year or whatever it is. So many days before he is done with this rotation. What do you think happens to this guy, Dave? I think he dies. I think he eventually dies. He takes too many chances. There's just mm-hmm. no way he doesn't end up dead. Because this wasn't this his first tour in Iraq, but he had seen time in Afghanistan. Something like that, or a couple tours. You know, when he was asked, he's like, how many bombs have you defused? And he's like, ah, you know. And they're like, soldier, tell me. He's like, 837, sir. You know, so he's been doing this a while. He's good at it, and he's addicted to it. He is cavalier and reckless at the same time, too. Do you think he'd been doing it for like two years? Because it's like three or four a day. It, you know, it has, it has to be longer than that. Um, yeah, it's probably more than that. I don't know. Years, you know. Yeah. I think that's probably why he has an ex-wife at home, <laughs> in his home. Because she's like, why do I need to move? You are always on duty. 
yeah i anyway i definitely think he dies 100 percent. do you do you agree it's hard to say he's just a guy who's gonna keep doing this until he can't do it anymore hmm. hard to say if he dies or just washes out or finally cracks this is where the movie is an analogy to the iraq war just like james going back for another tour of duty it kind of shows us that we don't know when the iraq war is going to end and at the time we didn't we're still there it's been 20 years almost um you know it's like this ongoing thing no clear end in sight it's messy we're not really sure of the goals of what we're trying to accomplish even there anymore i think we're just kind of doing cleanup now and i feel like his whole story is exactly that he goes to iraq he's got like a minor mission and it's not really clear ultimately what he's doing what the big picture is he's just doing these things and he keeps going back because we're not sure when it's going to end or how it's going to end i think it's a good segue to talk about this film in the context of war films because most Mm -hmm. war films are like a bigger picture and you you win right so there's some goal you have to achieve you achieve that goal and this one the goal is just to be there and that makes it different and unique and it's probably one of the reasons why it propelled it to the best picture there isn't an end you know there's no winning so one of the things that i actually wanted to chat about is fear in this film and it's clear Mm -hmm. that that james has no fear or very little fear should we praise him admonish him what is the film saying about him in this this specific instance he's a cool operator because he's done this too long and like is numb to all of it that's how i view it yeah i i kind of feel like the film is saying like you probably shouldn't be like him with the name of the film again that we talked about earlier and the quote it's along the lines of he might be cool here but his consequences have ripple effects around everyone else and he's kind of oblivious to it yeah yeah. in some ways let's talk about why this movie won best picture we touched on this before the camera work Mm -hmm. new different ninja cams editing Mm -hmm. and actually they had one camera effect that i don't think had been used much before when there are explosions Catherine bigelow and her camera crew tried to capture what it is like to do that they used high frame rate film Mm -hmm where they're filming hundreds of frames a second to kind of show all those little things happening, like the dust moving and coming off the ground a little bit, Mm -hmm. blast wave coming towards you and things like that. So I think that was a new camera effect we also hadn't seen. Those are some of the technical aspects that I think helped push the movie over the top. What about you? I think technically this is a really solid movie. The acting, particularly Jeremy Renner's, is really good. I don't want to discount Anthony Mackie. I think he's really good and probably overlooked in this film. The story is interesting in context of other war movies, so, so it's unique. It's a really solid film. I also think it probably won for like outside context. Like If you look at the race for Best Picture in this year, it, it was Avatar versus The Hurt Locker. And so essentially it was like quasi-art house versus mega, mega popular film. Does the Academy want to be represented as an artistic achievement or a popular achievement? And the Academy always struggles with it it goes back and forth it's a pendulum Mm -hmm. and in this year they decided to go artistic also i think a better film than (laughs) Uh, but i think that contributed to it i think you watched it a couple times and i watched it a couple times in the past couple weeks the tension is still there every time Mm -hmm, you watch it Mm -hmm. which i think many movies can't do after you've seen it and this movie somehow manages to keep that so i think that is a marvel in and of itself. That is impossible to do, but they did it. So, John, The Hurt Locker holds a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, and it was universally praised by critics. 
I believe A.O. Scott or the New York Times said it was the best film of the decade. The decade? Yeah, he was. he's all into this movie, man. It's crazy. Okay. Is Rotten Tomatoes right? It's at a 97%. This is another one of those scores that uh, it just means that 97% of critics agreed that they liked it. Were critics right to say that it's a good movie? I like the movie, you know, like everyone can have their own opinion. Would I say this is the best movie of the decade? No. No. Uh, I don't really know what it is. I'd have to think about that. But this was actually something I wanted to revisit for a little while, Dave, because I hadn't seen it in in some time. I still like it. So it, it definitely holds up. I'm going to I'm going to push you on this John. John. I'm pushing yep. you. 97. Is it a 95? 98? Too high, too low. I'm I'm going to push I don't you. know. I don't I don't have <laughs> I don't have a I'm not like ticking off. I'm like special effects there. Boom. Editing there. <laughs> I get Boom. it. I get it. I get Acting it. there. Yep. I I can't give such a precise number, but I like the film. This is what I will say. So I like the film. I liked it when I first saw it. Would I say it is a must see? Mm, that's a good good one. Probably not. Really? I thought you were going to say yes. If you say, like, what are your top 50 movies of all time? I don't know if this makes my cut. Yeah. You know, like, what would you say about that, Dave? Okay. Okay. I have to think about this. You threw a curveball at me. Uh, So first, I'm going to say that I like this film. I am also going to say that a 97 is too high. I think this is, like, 92 not low low a high b it's oddly precise but okay hey this is this is the whole this theme of the night me being oddly precise for some reason okay uh, like 3.97 stars <laughs> usually i don't do that is it in my top 50 absolutely not is this a must see huh i don't think it is i don't think it is like it's a good film but there are a lot of better films out there will i watch this film again no but would I recommend someone just watch it? Yes. That's, a, yeah, that's interesting. If someone asked about it, I'd say like, yeah, you should see that. It's not going to make my top 50 movies. I hadn't really thought about it much, honestly, since I'd seen it. Again, not bad. I would say even good. Yeah. It's not going to crack anyone's top 50 list, I don't think. I don't know. I could Except for A.O. Scott, who's like, I love this movie. Yeah, best <laughs> movie of the decade. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, that's that's a wild stance. I read that and I was like, no, this guy. Like, I I like him a lot as as a, a critic and a writer, but I was like, uh, uh-uh, no. <laughs> All right, so let's just cut to the chase. Winner or wiener? It's a winner. I think it's a winner. I agree. Again, I don't think you need to see this movie, but you'll enjoy it. Yeah. Okay. So, John, let's do our porn name. You have a great one, and I have a mediocre one. I don't. No, wait. You know what? I'm going to go before you, so I get a little bit of laughs. <laughs> so I get I get the the bigger explosion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm calling it Bimbo Bomb Squad, and the tagline is "There's always an explosion." So I mean, you said mine's better, but I I kind of just looked online because it's like there's got to be a porn parody of this. Like this has to exist, and it does. It's called the Squirt Locker. <laughs> did you watch it? I did not. I thought about it, but then didn't do it. I mean, what's the plot? <laughs> I, I, I don't bet, know. I bet I, I bet I can guess. Why would you even watch it for the plot? Let's talk about that. <laughs> Does it involve super soakers? Uh, anyway, ooh, maybe veering towards NC seventeen. <laughs> yep. So, John, that was the Hurt Locker. That was the Hurt Locker. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad we watched it because, again, I, I've been hoping to get back to this film mm-hmm. for some time, just because I was curious. I'm glad we watched it too. I had more fun researching this and talking about this one than I had in the last several Oscar winning movies we've done. <laughs> you know what movie I really don't want to do? Nomadland. <laughs> uh, 
I'm a different opinion than you, but yeah, I, I understand. <laughs> uh, that's coming in like three months. <laughs> okay. Sure. Um, okay. So feedback housekeeping. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at david at awardweeners.com, john at awardweeners.com. Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram. We do movie reviews. We do memes. We have a really good community there. You'll find out about stuff we're doing first on Instagram and then on the podcast. Uh, other than that, I, I have some stuff coming out on the movies, films, and flicks with Mark Hoffmeyer, who's a friend of our podcast. And I also want to give a shout out to the movie seller. Thanks, guys, for tagging me on Twitter. <laughs> I enjoy talking to you. Keep it up. What's next, Dave? What's next is In the Heat of the Night. We're going to watch all yep. 12 seasons. We're going to break down every season, John. Are you ready for this? Let's do it. Let's start with season 12. Let's go backwards. Let's go so bad. I didn't think you were going to one-up me there. In the Heat of the Night, uh, remember, this is for our Best Picture ballot winner, Lisa. Lisa, if you're listening, we'll reach out to you soon. We just want to know why you picked this film and uh, what you like about it. Let's All right, Dave. Yeah, let's have a chat. What's a zinger? We don't have a zinger, John. What's a zinger? Uh, keep it together. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. You're the bomb still. Just have an explosion. Right. Get out of here. That fizzled. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Boom. Over. Then